Um, you know, as I was listening to, to Brandon read that, um, I was thinking about a couple things. You know, there's some things in the Bible that are very, very easy to understand. Uh, how marriage is one woman, one man. Uh, John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. Uh, we're saved by grace through faith, not a result of works. Uh, don't lie, don't cheat, don't steal, don't commit adultery, pray, read your Bible. Uh, Jesus and the church are an inseparable couple. There are things in the Bible that are very easy to understand. Chapter 11 is not one of those things. All right, Uh, I like it. I've been chewing on this thing all week and I liken it to a spiritual steak from Waffle House. Uh, It's thick, it's tough to chew and tough to digest. All right, so we're gonna need some some help here to work through this chapter um, because we haven't even haven't been uh, been in this book in really a couple of weeks. This chapter has been the source or the subject of many, many different theological debates and discussions because of all the imagery that's found in here. It's also one of the most important chapters in all of Revelation to remind us about the purpose of this book, all right? As I said, it's been a couple of weeks since we've been in this book, so we need to get our minds back into the Revelation kind of mode there if you've been away for a little bit, or if you're brand new and you're walking in smack in the middle of Revelation 11, welcome to the creek, Um, Let me see if I can help you show you what God has been teaching us in this misunderstood omega of the Bible, all right? So despite common uh, misconception or misperception, this book is not a futuristic speculation by the church. It's not meant to, to cause us to speculate about the future. That's not what we're supposed to do. The purpose of this book is to show God's present preservation of the church in a wicked world where his judgments are unfolding over and over and over again throughout human history. The church age began over 2,000 years ago at the ascension of Jesus Christ. So as Jesus left, what began to happen, God's judgment on a wicked world and will continue to happen over and over again through human history, increasing in intensity, culminating in the final return of Jesus Christ. So this is not futuristic. This is very present in our time of need. You have to remember John is writing this letter to the church in Asia, Asia Minor, And they were in a skirmish with anti-God, awful Rome, right? Anti-God, hating on Christians, definitely didn't love Jesus or any of his church or followers. So the problem was that the believers in the first century, their view, their scope of things was, was blinded. They had a limited view because of their own humanity and they had a limited view of history, So they couldn't see that there was this cosmic battle happening in the heavenly places between God and Satan. So they needed some encouragement. This is where the letter comes in because what happens is Jesus calls John up to the throne room of heaven to give him a revelation, a picture of this heavenly throne room. He gets there and he pulls this curtain back so that John can peer in and see 
a different perspective, a different scope of this battle between good and evil that's been happening over human history. But even though it looks like doubt and fear and they're losing, he gets this picture, this revelation of Jesus Christ sitting on the throne room, which says, God is sovereign over everything that's happened in the earth. He's in full control. He is the reigning king. He is a good thing or a good king. And although it seems that we're losing, the end of the story is Jesus Christ will come in the final glory, victorious. And that everyone who believes in Jesus, who is faithful unto Jesus, will also experience and taste the victory of Jesus. But everyone who's outside of Jesus Christ, who is not a follower of Jesus Christ, who lives for themselves, unfaithful to Jesus, they will experience God's judgment forever and ever and ever, and they will perish. That's the picture of this book. Now, another interpretive uh, principle that we're using to study this book is we believe it is apocalyptic literature, which means symbolic. So as we come to these things in Revelation, which is full of words like like, which is a metaphor, lampstands, beast, dragons, fire-breathing people, uh, trumpets, all these imagery, as we come to these things, if we try to interpret them literally we are going to end up more confused than a Kardashian on Jeopardy, all right? And you don't want to be that person, right? All the pieces just won't fit together, all right? But if we can read it, I'm sorry if I offended the Kardashian fans in here. You shouldn't be watching it anyway. So um, (laughs) if we can read this symbolically, right? I think then we'll see the richness of the teaching here. So let me set up right where we're jumping in today. Chapter 11 is like chapter 7. If you remember chapter 7, after the six seal judgment, man, it's just, God's judgment is just on the world. It's powerful. It's, it's just it's taken over. And then what happens is we see this question, who can stand against God's judgment in the world? We saw that the ones who could stand were the 144,000 and the great multitude, those believers, Christians who have been sealed by God, they can stand. So it was a pause in the middle of God's judgment to encourage the believer. That's what chapter seven was. Chapter 11 is the same thing. In the middle of the trumpet judgments, here God today, again, is to encourage the believer in Jesus Christ who is at war. It feels like war in our world, but he's going to tell us today how we can have peace in the middle of the war, all right? So let's break this thing down. I've got three things I want you to see. The first thing I want you to see is this, that God's church is at peace. God's church is at peace. We're gonna see this in verses just one through two. Then I was given a measuring rod like a staff and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
All right, uh, I want you to underline the words temple and city. Understanding what they mean uh, will greatly help us in interpreting what's going on here. Now, in verses one through two, we see that John is given a measuring rod to measure the worshipers uh, and measure the temple and the altar to count the number of worshipers there. This story, the Old Testament story in the backdrop of this is Ezekiel 40 through 48. Ezekiel was also told to grab a measuring rod and to measure the temple of God and to measure the city where they dwelt. Now you have to remember in the Old Testament, right? The scripture, what was the temple? What was the temple is the key to the entire thing. The temple was where God was. The temple was where God dwelt. And the city is where God's people dwelt. That's what the temple and that's what the city means. Now, let me pause for a moment because some people will interpret this temple and city as literal. They would call, we'd call them futurist or literalist. We're not gonna divide over these, but I, I see a couple of issues here because they believe, they read this and they say, okay, in the future, there is going to be a literal rebuilding of a new temple that one day the Jews by war and by force will come back in and they will rebuild the temple in Mount Zion, Jerusalem, the city of God. Now today in Jerusalem, there's two Muslim mosques that actually sit there. Uh, so, but like I said, that literally they think they're gonna come in, blast down the thing, take it over and then rebuild the temple so that God can dwell there. In the city, which is Jerusalem, physically a city. Here's why I have some issues with that. Number one, Jesus foretold the destruction of a temple, but not the rebuilding of a physical temple. He never said that, all right? Number two, the purpose of the temple in the Old Testament was animal sacrifices for sins. That was a function. That's why they used the temple, blood animal sacrifices over and over and over again until you get to the New Testament. Jesus Christ, our lamb who was slain, the final sacrifice, the final drop of blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. There would be no need for any more animal sacrifices. So you building a new temple is literally and almost a, an, a, a direct assault against the cross and the sufficiency of what Christ accomplished. There's no need for another physical temple to be, born, uh, to, be, to be built here. Now, there's a third reason why I don't believe it's literal here is because in the Old Testament, God used the temple as a place where he dwelt with his people, right? New Testament comes along. Where is the new temple that God dwells in his people? It's right here. It's inside of us. We are the temple of God. Look at what Paul says here, 1 Corinthians 3.16. Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? 2 Corinthians 6.16. What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. And God said, I will make my dwelling 
among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So I don't believe we're talking about a literal rebuilding of the temple because the temple is right here. It's in me. It's in you. The God of the universe is not some far, far away deity. He's right here with you, very close, very findable, very present and near to the Christian, protecting you, governing you, guiding your thoughts, your desires, your devotions, all these things. He's right here. We are the temple. Now notice, if we define now the temple is the church, all right? So here the temple is being measured. John is told to measure the church. Well, what's measure mean? Does that mean literally to take a yardstick from the shed and go measure the church? Of course, it doesn't mean that. Measuring is the same word that was used in chapter 7 to talk about the 144 who were sealed. Measured, sealed. What John is saying here is that his, he's sealing, a securing the church. The, the city of God, the church of God, the temple, we're all sealed, protected forever and ever. That is what John is saying here. We're the temple. We're spiritually safe, spiritually sealed against God's judgments. All right? Now, secondly, let's get down to the city because now we see John was told not to measure the outer court. They will be given over to the nations and they'll trample the holy city for 42 months. What is the city? Because it's being trampled for 42 months. We got to know what the city is. Let me, let me share with you what the city is. Look at Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar of the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it, and I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down from my God out of heaven and my own new name. The city of my God. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount in um, Matthew 5, Jesus said that the church was a city on a hill. I hope you hear me. The temple is the church. The city is the church. The temple is sealed. The city is being trampled on. I don't know if you're making any connection now. Let me attempt to make that. What John is saying is that the church is spiritually safe, but in physical danger. We are spiritually secure, spiritually safe, but will experience and will be exposed to harm, hostility, suffering, persecution, and even unto death. That's a pretty big thing. That's us, by the way, in case you're tracking with us. We are in the church age. By the way, this 42 months is not talking about some futuristic thing. 42 months is a, a period of time used in the scripture to, to describe God's people in tribulation. 
Israel in the wilderness, there was 42 stages or 42 camps. Elijah prayed and God shut up the heavens for how long? 42 months there was not rain. 42 months just means the history of the church all this time. And during this whole history of the church, from remember the ascension of Jesus to the return, we will be spiritually safe. But we will also experience physical danger. This is a promise. This is a promise. Are you okay with that? Are you okay knowing that your soul is safe and secure and that you are spiritually safe, but you might get exposed to physical harm, hostility, and danger? Are you okay with that? You know, our world, we know, is obsessed with physical preservation right now. Our world wants you to only think about your physical safety. There's an obsession with it. Undervalued spiritual life, overvalued physical life in the culture. I'm not telling you that physical life doesn't matter. Please hear me. There's a ranking that's happening here. But our world, the natural man, is obsessed with physical safety, physical survival. Why? Because to the natural man, Death is the worst thing that could ever happen. You know, the culture, when I turn on my TV, I don't think CNN has ever, ever encouraged me to take a spiritual survey. Dr. Fauci isn't asking me about my quiet times. Fox News doesn't tell me to pray. Why? Because they're obsessed with the physical realm and not the spiritual realm of the world. It is not so for the Christian. That's the point of this whole thing. John said, hey, I know it might be physically crazy out there. You might get exposed to a virus. There's going to be another virus, y'all. There's going to be hostility, harm, persecution, mockery, physical sickness. It's coming. But hey, it's okay, church, because you are spiritually safe. That is the point of this passage. Now, here's what you do with that. You go out into this world to people who are enslaved to the fear of death. The natural man is obsessed and in slavery to the fear of death. I told you that's the worst thing that can happen to them, right? So what does their life revolve around? Life preservation, sucking every bit of joy out of this life. It's the best one life I ever have, right? And we have to go out there and say, hey, how's your spiritual life? Are you spiritually safe? I got a way to free you up from the fear of death, the fear and the constant anxiety of worry of getting sick and dying. We have spiritual safety and now we go out there because we love those people and they need to be freed up. 
You know who else is out there? Some very dear brothers and sisters in Christ who have been lulled to sleep, have fallen into the trance of the world that says, your physical safety is the most important thing in the world. People who haven't been to church in a year and a half, and they've forgotten and they've fallen asleep. And it's time. I've been holding some stuff in for a little bit. It's time. They need to get back in here. They need the people of God singing over their weary, sick souls. They need the encouragement of the believer. They need to execute the 59 one another's in the New Testament that can only be done in the flesh. You do that safely, however you want to do that. We got opportunities to do that at LifePoint Church. But it's time. It's time to come back. If you're watching online, it's time to be here. We weren't made to not worship in person for a year and a half. And it's time. So I want you, join me in the, in the good fight of going out there and getting our brothers and sisters in Christ and tell them to get back in church because you love them and they need this. You know who I'm talking about. They're playing it safe, trying to be comfortable. They'll come up with a lot of reasons. Like, I get it. You tell them, you can be safe. You can come here, come to the 8, come to the 11, go to the Smyrna campus, sit in the cafe, whatever it is. But you got to be here because I see you at Walmart. (laughs) I didn't have that in there. That matter of fact, I didn't say that the first two services. But I'm just being real, y'all. Let's go get them, all right? We are spiritually safe. Uh, Am I gonna get you guys back or what? Here, here we go. All right. God's, second thing, God's church at war. Y'all love it when I laugh, golly. You're like, I got so serious all the time, man. Laugh a little bit. I laugh all the time. Here we go. God's church at war, verses three through six. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky, but no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have the power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. So in verses three or verse three, God grants these two witnesses the authority to prophesy or preach on the earth for 1260 days. It's 42 months, three and a half years, which is the same period of time that the church is being trampled on. All right, there's a lot of connections that are happening here. Um, But then he calls them two olive trees and two lampstands. Two witnesses, and now there are two olive trees and lampstands. The lampstands stand before Lord, fire comes from their mouth and devours enemies. They have the power to shut off the rain and bring plagues. So a lot of imagery that's happening here. Now, right out of the gate, literalists and futurists would say, this is the return 
physical return of Moses and Elijah, the two great witnesses, the two great prophets. Because of the language here we're seeing um, about shutting up the heavens where there was no rain, that's Elijah language right there. Then who caused plagues on the earth? Who was the vessel God used? Moses. So they say, okay, this is, this is going to be Moses and Elijah and a physical return to the earth. And they will physically go out and prophesy through the world. I do not believe this is a physical resurrection of Moses and Elijah coming back into the world. Um, I, I'll tell you who I think it is. I think... These two witnesses, they are not historical figures. They're not Moses and Elijah, and they're not two people that will come. I believe two witnesses represents the church. The church, right? We are the witnesses of God in a wicked, dark world called to prophesy and proclaim the gospel in the midst of God's judgment and to testify and witness to the grace that God offers through Jesus Christ. We are the witnesses here. All right, I want you to see a couple of things here. Why I believe that we are these witnesses. In the ancient world, if you'll remember, two witnesses were required to make a case valid, like a legal case. You had to have two witnesses, right? So here's two witnesses. In addition to when Jesus sent out his disciples, how did he send them out in numerical numbers? They, he sent them out by what? Two by twos. Witnesses. These witnesses represent the church. It's us. We are called to go out into a dark, dark world that will face a lot of opposition. You see the opposition that they're facing here in the text. That's us. That's us stepping into uh, hostility and mockery and hard things and demonic dark forces. That is us in the church age. Another reason here is because notice they were called the two lampstands. Remember in uh, the seven churches, the study earlier on in Revelation, the seven lampstands were referred to as the seven churches. That's who, the, this is, that's who this is. This is the church. And notice that while they're prophesying, fire came out of their mouths as they were attacked. Now, this is not, once again, fire-breathing people. Right? It's not fire coming out of the mouth. Literally, this is an Old Testament reference when Elijah... In 2 Kings, when Elijah called down fire from heaven and God, uh, man, God told Jeremiah, he was making his word like a fire in Elijah's mouth. That when Elijah spoke, it was like a fire against the demonic dark forces in the world that he would have power, power to push back the evil. Church, as we go as the two witnesses, as the church, and we go into the dark, dark world, every time you preach the gospel, every time you tell someone the truths of the Bible, you are spitting fire in the face of the devil. It is scripture on fire out of your mouth and everywhere you go as you're pushing back the dark lies of the enemy in the world and that you also have this kind of power in you to spit fire, not literally, 
but figuratively. The power is what? The power is the Holy Spirit inside of you. The same power that rose Jesus from the grave is inside of you. You are a fire-breathing, uh, gospel-preaching person. And you need to get out into the world and spit some fire. That's basically what he's saying here in this text. This is, in fact, the number one application in the book of Revelation. The number one application, street level, what do I do this with my life kind of thing? It's this. It's not self-preservation. It is not for your comprehension. And it's not even for your own individual reflection. Oh, I think Revelation's about this, and that's really good, and I'm just really meditating it on my life. And it's, No. The purpose of the book of Revelation is for gospel proclamation. It's so that we would get up and that we would be the witnesses to a dark, wicked world. It's why you're here today and not dead yet. It's why Jesus hasn't raptured you up, come back and raptured all of us because there's work to do. It's the purpose, right, to be witnesses. So my question was this, has anyone ever accused you or praised you for being a witness for Jesus? Has anyone ever said, wow, man, you're a witness for Jesus? Or accused you of being one? Hey, man, I just won't shut up about the gospel. Ever? One person. Like, I, I would say this in love, that if you've never, ever witnessed to anyone about the goodness of Jesus Christ to anyone, I would seriously have to question your salvation. I, I, I don't see how you can't tell one person, like just one person about how good God is and how he saved you. It's either, I think it's either that or there's some great, great enmity between you and God somewhere in there. How can we not go tell? How can we not I think we need to ask ourselves, are we truly witnesses to Jesus Christ? I pray that this week, maybe that God would give you courage and boldness, that maybe you would be willing to pray for an opportunity to go witness to someone this week. Could be your neighbor, could be someone in your own home, could be the person at the gas station, the restaurant you go to, at the ball fields, the bleachers you sit next to someone school, cafeteria, wherever, online, whatever, I pray God would give you a great opportunity to preach and witness to someone today. You have the power inside of you to do it. Let me go to the last, the last bullet here. God's church is immortal, immortal. All right, let's read this in verses seven on. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some peoples from tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth 
will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets have been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and the enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in an earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is still to come. When the church's mission is finally complete, we have preached the gospel to every nation, tribe, and language. When it's all done, this is a, I want you to get futuristic here now, all right? We're looking at the very, 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 very end of the story. When that happens, the beast will be released and he will kill Christians. The enemies of God on the earth will kill Christians. Their bodies will lay on the ground. This is a picture of human depravity at its worst. The degradation of humanity as it continues to progress through the ages and people who hate Christians will kill Christians, mock them, throw their bodies out in the streets, gawk at them, won't give them a tomb, slain in the street, mocking them and their God, celebrating, having a party. Oh, those Christians, they had it coming to them, judgmental, intolerant, archaic, closed-minded people. They finally got what they deserved. Death, we win, look at us, they're dead, we're alive. That's what they're doing. They're having a party, right? And then what happens? God breathed life into their dead bodies after three days. This is resurrection language. Jesus' resurrection language. Breathes life into their dead bodies. They, they literally are raised from the dead. They look up, they come up, and they hear the words that every single Christian longs to hear. Come up here. Come on. Come up here. It's time. The end is here. Here I am. Faith turned to sight. You need me. Let's go. Come up here. This is not a fearful thing for the Christian. This is not something that we should be afraid of. Like the, the hope is that you would see Jesus as so precious that when this happens, you aren't saying, ah, oh, not yet. Jesus, I, my life is going so good here. I got this cool job. I'm making good money. The kids are great. No, we got to stay here. Man, if that's what you're doing, you love the world too much. You love the world and the things of this world too much. And you're not seeing Jesus properly. Because when you see him, the beauty of Jesus and the true wickedness of this world, you want to hear the words come up here. You want to hear the victory, the final victory when he calls you home. That is the picture of the encouragement that he seeks to give us is this. We are immortal. 
The body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is forever. Though you might die, you will live forever with Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said that his life wasn't, he didn't count his life worthy. He's like, if I live, I'm with Jesus. If I die, I'm with Jesus. He didn't fear death. Why? Because he knew he was immortal. Church, you are in Christ Jesus, immortal. Immortal. Isn't that a beautiful, beautiful promise and encouragement? So wrapping up what we just heard today. Our spiritual lives are safe and secure. Our suffering is to be expected. Our responsibility is to preach and prophesy the gospel. And our promise is that we are immortal. I think this book would have been very timely to that little church in Asia, minor, who was discouraged. You, you, some of you might be, this might describe you. I think today there are Christians who, they, they live in their life right now and they are just in this constant posture of discouragement over the moral condition of the world today. I mean, I get it. Morality is drastically decreasing every single day. It's literally caving in right before us. There's this despair. Some, that's all they do. They're fighting against the country, fighting for America to be saved. They're fighting because they're the conspiracy theorists. They just go around all day long and all they do is sow seeds of despair instead of seeds of the gospel. You know who I'm talking about? Might be you. You might have forgotten some beautiful, beautiful things. You might have forgotten that in the end, God wins. And you got caught up in the trap. I'm going to tell you a story that might help you, might challenge you, don't know. Um, I often quote a guy named Martin Luther who was the, basically the igniter of the 15th century Reformation. I don't often talk about his wife, Katie. So I want to share a story with you about Katie. Martin Luther was a guy who... Um, Struggled with depression throughout his life. He would go through stages and phases of darkness, depression, just despair, kind of like what we're talking about today over the condition of the world, his own life, just ho-hum, doom and gloom kind of mentality. Well, his wife uh, noticed that he was in one of these spiritual funks and that he just wouldn't get out of it. So she concocted a plan to get him out of this, this condition that he was in. So she, she came home and she put on this long black dress. Uh, black veil over her face. Um, and she walked into the living room where Martin Luther was and just kind of stood in the doorway. And Martin Luther looked up to her. He said, what are you doing? Katie, you're in a black dress. You have a veil over you. Why are you mourning? Who died? And she said, apparently your God did. Or at least that's the way you're acting. Church, some of you and some people we know are living their life as if God is dead, that he's not the ruling and reigning king. The empty tomb serves as a memorial or monument that he's not there anymore. And yes, you might experience physical suffering in this world. You might experience through death, sickness, disease, mockery, hostility, losing friends, you name it. But you make sure of this. If you are in Christ 
Jesus, you are spiritually safe. You are to preach the gospel and you are immortal forever and ever because of the reigning king. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, I don't mean do you know the big guy in the sky, the man upstairs, the guy you call on when you're in trouble, the God who doesn't bother you if you don't need anything. I'm not talking about that God. I'm talking about the God of the universe who hates sin, who judges the wicked, but has offered salvation and grace only through believing in Jesus Christ, his perfect life, his death, his resurrection. Do you know that Jesus? Because he's the only way to all of the promises that you've seen today. If you don't and you want to know more about it, you've got questions, you're like, I don't know, maybe I don't like, if that's anywhere inside of you and you feel just this, this struggle in there, this angst, would you please mark it on your card? Check a box. Come talk to us on the way out. We would love for you. These promises are not, we, none of us here deserve any of these things. It's all by grace. So we want you to know how you can also receive the grace of God. Let me pray, and then I'll, 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 we'll worship out here today through song. All right, Father, we love you. We adore you. You have taken a very, um, just a thick and heady passage. And God, I pray, I pray that the clarity uh, of your word, what you would want your people to hear has been heard today. Father, would you help us to remember that we are spiritually secure Although we will face the suffering that our spiritual safety and spiritual lives are of so much more value. We're going to get a new body. So whatever the world does to our body today, it won't touch our resurrected bodies. God, I pray that you activate the hands and the feet and the lips of the people of our church to prophesy, to proclaim, to be the witnesses we've seen today. And God, may we walk around with the humble confidence that we are immortal. We love you in Christ's name. Amen. Hey, if you're a guest or got a card or anything, stop up on the way out. Say hi. I've got a gift to get you. And also go see Brandon.